As we get started today, I want to ask you a very simple question. It might hit a little close to home, but I hope you're thinking about these things like I do at a new year. I want to ask you, what is it about yourself that you would most like to change? What is it about yourself that you'd most like to change? I'm not asking that in a superficial way or a superfluous kind of shallow way. I don't care if you want to be richer. I don't care if you want to be hotter. Uh, I don't care if you wish you could grow a beard, which is my superficial wish for the new year. God didn't bless me with enough follicles, I guess, or something. Maybe testosterone is the problem. Um, but, uh, but I do not have beard-growing abilities. And all of you guys that have beards here today, I'm quietly judging you and hating you for your perfect beard faces. And uh, that's what I would say. But that's not what I'm interested in right now. I'm asking about your personality and your tendencies. I'm asking about your habits your go-to default coping mechanisms when it hits the fan, when you're stressed, when you're anxiety-ridden. What do you wish you could change about that part of you? Because really, we, we should be able to be honest before God and each other about the fact that we're not completely happy with ourselves which is not a very culturally sound thing to do these days because in our modern culture, these days, yourself is the highest ideal there is. Like it's the most important and best thing that you have is yourself. You're not supposed to be unhappy with yourself. You're supposed to accept yourself and love yourself for who you are. That's what, you know, all the Oprah kinds of, you know, pop psychology things will tell you that you're supposed to accept and love who you are. Never be critical of yourself. I'm not asking you to, I'm not asking you to, to hate yourself. I'm asking you to own up to the fact that there are things about yourself that you hate. There should be. There's things about myself that I hate. Hate's a strong word, but I mean it in this context. There are things about myself I do not like. Most of myself, I'm okay with. Hopefully most of yourself, you're okay with. But that little sliver of, of me that little part of you, what do you want to change? There's nothing wrong with making lists of these kinds of things and identifying them. I think that's how the turnaround begins. You can't really know what you're turning around from until you've identified uh, what you want to change about yourself. And so this series is five weeks dedicated to the turnaround because we often talk about transformation and change and people say, oh, Jesus changed my life. But 90% of you out there probably don't even know what that means. Having your life changed by Jesus, what's that process look like? Where do I apply for that kind of a transformation? That sounds really nice. How can I engage in that kind of change? This process of transformation is exactly what we're going to be talking about for the next five weeks. <clears throat> and the, the inspiration for this series really came to me through years of experience as a pastor. Because when you're a pastor, people bring their stuff to you all the time. And I love being there for my people. I, please never stop you know, trusting me with the stuff of your life. I love it. But I will say the longer I've been a pastor, the more exhausting your stuff has become to me. And I love you dearly. Um, but, but I got to say, uh, the longer you're in a profession like ministry, and some of you who are therapists or maybe counselors or even teachers, people that work with people a lot, 
You probably notice the same thing I notice, that the more people that come to you over the years, the more you hear the same stories again and again and again. It's almost like we have a set of like five scripts that we select from, and we all live according to these scripts. And I have heard the same things over and over. Now, when you're telling me this stuff, I pretend like in front of you, like it's the first time I've ever heard it. Like you are the most interesting and unique person on the planet because I love you. And I want you to know that I care about your problems, but I'm telling you, uh, the same look you're giving me right now, because you've heard sermons like this before, you're, you're giving me the feeling that my sermon's unique and special, right? I do the same thing for you when you sit and tell me the same stuff I hear all the time, right? So, uh, so I hear stories like, um, for example, I always seem to hurt the people closest to me. The people closest to me, I seem to hurt the most, and I don't know why. That is, but I just can't seem to help it. Or I hear stories like, I know my wife loves me. Right, pastor? She loves me. Yeah, she loves you. And I know that if I have an affair, it will destroy my family. Right, pastor? Yes, yes, uh, it will destroy your family. But pastor, this girl at work, she makes me feel so alive. Doesn't God want me to feel alive? Pastor, no, no, actually, God wants you to go home to your wife. Doesn't God want me to be happy? No, God wants you to be faithful to your wife. Um, and I hear these same kinds of, of stories. You know, I, I know I'm going to ruin things, but I just can't seem to resist this tendency to pursue this path I know will bring me certain destruction. I hear other people say things like, every time something goes wrong at work or at school or at home, I'm the first one to accept blame. I'm the first one to apologize. Usually this, these are women that come to me with this kind of tendency, not always, usually, I, they'll say things, I, I apologize for things all the time that I have no you know, part in doing. Like, I, I didn't do anything wrong, but I accept responsibility, and I don't know why I'm wired this way. I don't know why I carry this collar of blame and, and shame and guilt around on my neck all the time. I just can't explain it, but it's how I am. You know, every time um, my kids act up, I become something other than the parent I thought I would be. Every time my kids act up, my default mode, if I don't think about it, I will slip right into physical punishment mode, and I will physically punish my kids, even though I don't really believe in physical punishment of my children. I, that's my first instinct when I'm at my worst, and I don't know why, and I hear these stories all the time. Every time I'm anxious, I turn to food. I can't stop eating. Every time I'm, you know, stressed, I turn to the bottle. I can't stop drinking. Every time I'm lonely, I turn to sex, and I can't stop. You get it. And these patterns, they, they, break, they break my heart over time because there's such redundancy. But as I've thought about it, what really bothered me, what really inspired this sermon series wasn't just the patterns of things that I hear from people. It's been my reaction to those patterns because almost without fail, my ministry has been reactive in the face of these patterns. I've been a reactive pastor. You know, I'm called in after it hits the fan. 
after there's a crisis. I'm called in to do my work as a pastor. And I gotta tell you, I'm sick of being just a reactive pastor. I still wanna be there for you when it hits the fan. I wanna be there for you when there's a crisis. Pastor Gio and I and other leaders in the congregation, your small group leaders especially, can be there for you on the front lines after there's a problem. But I wanna be proactive in ministry. That's one thing I wanna change about ministry in 2016. I want to have a preemptive strike against these kinds of patterns taking shape in your life before you start living that script, or one of those scripts I just mentioned, I want to, uh, to work with you um, on it and to try and prevent uh, some of that. And so uh, that's what this series is about. It's about that turnaround. So one of the recurring themes that we're going to talk about today that uh, I've often heard in these uh, scripts as people have come to me is, I do this behavior and I don't know why I do it. I participate in this habit or I give in to this temptation and I have no logical explanation for why I give into it. Do you have anything like that in your life where you know there's a habit or a default mode you slip into and when you're doing it, you have no idea why you're doing it. After you do it, you have nothing but regret and remorse about it, but you keep going back to that same well where the water's poison. And so, you, you know, you, you can't explain it, but you do it. And what's interesting is that most of the people that come to me for counseling are well-adjusted, pretty educated, informed, you know, uh, thoughtful people like many of you. Uh, 90, 95% of your lives are well under control. You're balanced, you're healthy, you make good decisions 90 to 95% of the time. But there's this other 5 to 10% of your life you can't explain. There's this 5%, 5 to 10% of yourself that, that you're ashamed of, that you try to hide away and keep from other people. There are these tendencies, these habits that you wish were different. You can't explain. You never chose to be that way, and yet you can't avoid these things. And our first tendency is to hide them uh, from other people. What I want us to see today is that almost without fail, that 5 to 10% that I'm talking about, that dark side, that 5 to 10%, can almost without fail be traced back to your family history in some way. Almost without fail, you can trace that 5 to 10% that's a problem back to your genetics or uh, behavior that you observed growing up. Now, whether or not you knew you observed it, you observed it and you picked up habits and tendencies from your parents and siblings and grandparents and aunts and uncles that you yourself employ uh, in, in kind of a, a default uh, uh, way today. Um, and, and so what I want us to own up to is that every family is dysfunctional. Could you say that with me? Every family is dysfunctional. I want us to own this today because not every family is obviously dysfunctional, right? Some are. Some of you might come from obviously dysfunctional families where the dysfunction is way out in the open. You've got patterns of divorce and brokenness and, and you've got patterns of abuse. You've got patterns of addiction, generations in your family, and everybody knows it. And you know it. And it's not a secret. My hunch is that more of you come from families where the dysfunction is covert. It is special ops dysfunction. It is under the radar dysfunction. It is sweep it under the rug dysfunction. It is let's project perfection while within we are a mess dysfunction. 
It is your friend looking at your family and seeing a Norman Rockwell painting and saying, you're so lucky to have a family so perfect. And on the inside, you're rolling your eyes and deeply resenting that fact because you know the secrets. You know the family secrets, you know the lies, you know the history, you know all the stuff that's been swept under the rug. What's interesting is that if you grew up in a covertly dysfunctional family, you've probably mastered the art of covert dysfunction. You've probably, that's probably one of your 5 to 10% problems, is that you have mastered the art of projecting false perfection while sweeping the bad stuff under the rug and making other people feel bad about their families because you look so perfect from the outside. That is one of the things you can inherit from a covertly dysfunctional family. Every family is dysfunctional. No family is perfect. Nobody is perfect, save Jesus, of course, whose family, it turns out, was just as disastrous as yours. Jesus's family tree is a nightmare. Dr. Phil would go crazy with Jesus' family tree. He would make, you know, he would make an incredible living taking care of Jesus' family. And I, you might think that the gospel writers wanting to make Jesus look good would whitewash his family tree. You might think the people that wrote the scriptures would, with the heroes of our faith family, take out all the bad stuff. They do the opposite. They leave it in there. They highlight it. We know this because Matthew gives us Jesus' detailed family tree. Matthew's gospel, the first of the four gospels, begins with Jesus' family tree, chapter one. And it is a mess. You have to know your Bible to know what a mess it is, but it is a disaster. According to, you know, like family systems theory, it is horrible. Okay? So the first Four names. We're going to get to the others in subsequent sermons. But the first four names listed in Jesus' family tree are Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and Judah. All four of these men are well-known names in Scripture. You might call them heroes of the faith, but they are deeply flawed men. Deeply flawed. They are actually not only deeply flawed, they are similarly flawed. So when you read their stories, you start to pick up on these patterns, that they sin in the same ways as one another. It's almost like their sins are passed down from one generation to the next. They are all liars. They lie to get out of problems. They are all cowards. They are cowards instead of trusting in God's provision. They are all adulterers. They sleep around. Abraham had a child with a slave girl. Isaac lied constantly to get out of problematic situations. Isaac's grandson, Judah, was a total disaster. Genesis chapter 38 tells the story of Judah, uh, you know, having a little fling with his daughter-in-law and impregnating his daughter-in-law. Now, it's, it's, it's not entirely his fault, okay? It's kind of cool because he didn't know that was his daughter-in-law. She was disguised, you know, as a prostitute. So, you know, take it easy on Judah. And, and, and next week we'll talk about that daughter-in-law. What a story. The most interesting of these four men, though, is Jacob to me. And I think Jacob is supposed to be the most interesting to us because Jacob is given 25 chapters in the book of Genesis to tell his story. Jacob is Isaac's son. And Jacob, for years, struggles with the same cyclical sins that his family handed down to him. He's an opportunist. He's a coward. He's a liar. He's dishonest. 
The most famous story of Jacob's dishonesty is when his father has gotten old. Isaac, in his old age, has lost his sight. He has become blind. And Jacob sees an opportunity when his older brother Esau goes out to hunt. Jacob pretends to be Esau, goes to his father, his blind father Isaac, takes advantage of his blindness, and and convinces his father to sign over Esau's inheritance to Jacob. Jacob steals from his own brother but he comes by it honestly. He's despicable, but he's despicable because he's in this line, this pattern stuck in this rut of family sin. And so that's the life that Jacob lives. What I love about Jacob's story is that there is a distinct moment, there is a certain time where Jacob's life turns around. And what I am hoping is that there will be one of those for you and that it will be January of 2016. There is a moment where Jacob's life turns. There is a turnaround. It is Genesis chapter 32 where God comes to Jacob and fights him. God fights and Jacob fights back. Now, some of your Bibles will say they wrestled. I don't like the word wrestled here because most of us, when we think about wrestling you know we picture like andre the giant and uh an earthquake getting oiled up and like going after each other you know in kind of a staged way i had to use earthquake as an example because his son is here earthquake son is right over there you guys and uh, pretty cool and uh, and and so and so you know the 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 idea there is a little different Maybe you thought of college wrestling when you heard wrestling, you know, which is still fighting, but it's in a controlled environment. I think what happened with God and Jacob was not scripted. It was not controlled. It was fierce. It was wild. I think it was the kind of fight that turns men into into savages. I think there was wailing and screaming and bleeding and crying. There was at least one broken bone. I I think that, that, that it was intense, you know. And they fight until dawn. And that fight with God changes Jacob's trajectory. It changes the course of his whole life. Before that fight, Jacob was becoming just like his father and his grandfather. He was becoming an opportunist. He was becoming a coward. That was the course set out for his life. Still a good man, but not the man he was created to be. But the moment Jacob fights with God and survives the fight, he goes to find his brother. The verse after, Jacob goes to find Esau. What you need to know is that those two men hadn't spoken since Jacob stole Esau's inheritance from their father. Esau, in fact, had told several people that he wanted to kill Jacob and would kill him the next time that he saw him. Some of you might live in that kind of uh, family situation, maybe not as extreme as that, but you might have uh, that kind of fractured situation in your family. Maybe you are distanced from a sibling. Maybe some of your other family members are distanced from each other because of some argument or some fight gone wrong, some deception. Jacob and Esau had never met each other's wives. These two brothers, twin brothers, had never met each other's children. And after he wrestles with God, Jacob stops being a coward. And he goes and he tracks his brother down. And he bows seven times to the ground before his brother. It's a way of saying, I'm sorry. And then this happens. 
from Genesis 33. Esau ran to meet Jacob. He threw his arms around his brother's neck and kissed him, and they cried. Can you picture that moment? Two grown men in the Bronze Age or whatever, (laughs) crying, embracing, kissing, reconciling again. Jacob had the turnaround in a single move. Jacob disrupted his family's stronghold that had held the men in his family back for generations. He broke the curse. Now, I use the word curse a little bit lightly because I don't really believe in family curses. I don't, you might, uh, your family might have made you believe in a family curse, but I, I don't believe in family curses. However, the Bible does refer at a couple of points to the idea that God visits the sins upon uh, future generations. So God visits the sins of a father on his son and his son's children. If you heard this passage, God visits the, the iniquities uh, to the third or fourth generation. Exodus is one of the examples of that passage. It's in a couple of different places. And so you might be thinking that doesn't sound fair at all. You might have come to church today with the idea in your mind that you are in some way being punished for your family's sins. You're being punished for your father's sins, or your mother's Sins. And why would God, who is just, supposedly just, punish people for their family's sins? And the answer is, he doesn't. He wouldn't. He won't. There's been a little bit of a misunderstanding here with this passage, and it comes down to that word visiting. He will visit the sins of the Father on future generations. That does not say punish does not mean he will punish future generations. You are not being punished for the sins of past generations. The word visit is the same Hebrew word that's used to describe what happens at a census. It is to account for. It is to count. It is to take note of. And so this doesn't mean God punishes you for the sins of past generations. It means God accounts for them. God considers them when looking at your life. This isn't uh, a medieval kind of, uh, you know, judgmental God we're talking about here. This is a God who knows what you've been through. This is a God who knows how you've been affected by the sins of past generations. And he takes that into account when looking at your life. He's not judging you for it. He's taking account of it. Does that make sense? God knows we've all been dramatically, totally affected by the sins of our families. Our lives today are always impacted by the tendencies and cyclical sins of past generations. It just happens all the time. And science backs this up too. Science doesn't call it sins, obviously, it's okay. But the idea is the same. Um, there are several studies that point to the fact that if a parent is uh, alcoholic, that child of that parent is four to six times more likely to develop alcoholism. If both parents are alcoholics, the child is eight times more likely to develop alcoholism. Eight out of ten children of obese parents will become obese. If parents are divorced, the child or children are 40% more likely to get divorced as well. There are others uh, here. Sons of sexually promiscuous fathers are twice as likely to cheat on their wives. Between a half and a third of all child abuse victims become abusers in adulthood. That's a much higher ratio than people that didn't suffer abuse 
as children. A boy who sees his dad beating his mom is five times more likely to beat his wife or his girlfriend one day. There is no denying that these things are hereditary or they are passed down from one generation to the next. There's just no denying it, whether you're a theist or, or, or not, it, it, whether you believe in God or not, this is the truth. There are literally hundreds of these kinds of traits and, and, and flaws, hundreds of these tendencies and habits that are passed down from one generation to the next. There's a list of them on the screen, uh, and you can add to the list based on your own experience or maybe your spouse's experience. It's okay in your small groups to add and make your own additions. These are just some of the ones that I've seen. I believe there's another screen of it. All of these things can be traced oftentimes to family disorders, family dysfunction, and knowing that is so important and identifying where this comes from. This is where things start to get personal for us. So I'm going to ask you to think about your family history. Your family history. It's me and you and God right now. Think about parents or siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, and the kinds of patterns that have emerged. It's okay to take note of some of the positive patterns. I'm sure there are positive patterns, but it's also good to be honest about some of the negative patterns that have emerged. What habits or tendencies do the people that came before you and your family share? I know it's not easy. We want to think good things about our families, but let's be honest. Men, I especially want to call you men out to look at the men in your family. Look closely at the men in your family and the habits and tendencies that have existed for generations. Women do the same. The women in your family. And, and, and ask yourself, how have those habits and tendencies crept into my life? How have they affected me? And, 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 and how have those patterns affected me? Now, as hard as that might be, I'm going to tell you, if you want 2016 to be your turnaround year, there is no better place to begin than this honest conversation. There is no better thing to do than identify these patterns um, because, uh, because knowing there is half the battle in the beginning of your turnaround. I looked at the men in my family as I got ready for this new year and for this sermon and I discovered some obvious trends. Some of them were good trends. You know, divorce is not a problem in my family. I'm grateful for that. All the men in my family have been faithful to their wives. As far as I know, I'm, fa- I'm grateful for that. You know, the men in my family are generous usually and good leaders of their, of their families in terms of spirituality and getting their families to church. I think that's great. But the Huffman men, like most German families, a little bit of an anger problem. Little bit of a passive aggression that turns into a uh, you know powder keg kind of problem. And my dad, when I was growing up, my dad had a short fuse. He had a, a hot temper. It often got him in trouble. It often embarrassed my mom, my sister, and me. Um, and and it, it often made us feel like uh, like we were walking through a minefield in our own home. Now, I want to be clear, my father is my hero. 95% of the time, he was what every husband and father should be and more. Always present, 
always a provider, always a protector, amazing man, 95% of the time. But there was that other 5% that would come up once in a while. My dad coached every Little League team that I ever played on, which gives you an idea of uh, the kind of present father that he was and continues to be even today. Um, He uh, was a great coach, great mentor for the kids on the team. He would take children without a good family life at home under his own wing and make sure that they were cared for and that they could get to, to and from practices and things like that. But my dad was also known for screaming at the umpires in Little League games. These umpires would make 12 bucks a game, you know, and uh, I was the catcher. And so the umpires that were usually teenagers, they would talk to me about my dad, you know, like they're sitting right behind me and they're thinking, they're, they're asking me to go and, and calm my dad down. I'm 10 years old and I'm like, I'm not going to go talk to him. You talk to him. <clears throat> my dad got thrown out of more than one Little League baseball game, which when you're in a small town where everybody knows everybody, that can be a really interesting dynamic to grow up in. Now, we laugh about it now. My dad and I, we have a good time about it now. Back then, it wasn't all that funny, right? Back then, it wasn't uh, very humorous. And as a child, I didn't know why my dad was getting so angry. As a child, I thought I was doing something wrong. And so did my sister, you know? Because I couldn't see as a boy what I see now as a man, that my father was just mirroring what he saw from his dad. And his dad before him. And even, you know, my dad's older brother. My dad was just, was, was just doing what he knew. But I couldn't see it um, back then. I, I couldn't see. All I saw was him getting, um, you know, upset at times. And uh, I, I couldn't see how he was locked in a pattern. I've talked to him since then, and I know that that was a struggle for him. He did not want to be that way. He did not want to behave that way. He hated that 5% of who he was. He wanted to change, but he felt stuck in that pattern. He never wanted my mom and my sister and I to live in any kind of fear. He wanted to change. And by the grace of God, I can tell you, he absolutely has. The people that know him now but didn't know him back then would never believe me when I describe who he was then. You know, they know the guy who dresses up as a scarecrow from Wizard of Oz every Halloween and the guy who's a pastor to thousands, has been a pastor to thousands of people, the guy who is a great husband, even better grandfather, a great father to me. We're closer than we've ever been. But there was a change. There was a tide that shifted. The last time we got to play golf together, I asked my dad about that. I said, whatever happened to that old temper of yours? Whatever happened to your hot-headedness? How did you get over that? And he said, you know, I just finally figured out that I had to give that part of me to Jesus, and Jesus took it and changed it. And I know what you're thinking. That's preacher talk. That's how two preachers talk when they get together. I gave it to Jesus, and he changed it. I know you're thinking that's not real life, and that doesn't really make sense. I want you to consider something really quick. I know that we Christians all know we're supposed to give our our lives to Jesus. But here's what I'm going to tell you. 95% of us give 95% of our lives to Jesus. 95% of us give almost everything to Jesus, 
but we only give to Jesus the parts of ourselves that we're comfortable with Jesus knowing about. We don't want him to know about this other 5% over here. We'll take care of this. Jesus, you can have that. We'll manage. But we can't, can we? That 5% always comes back to poison the rest of us. And it's only when we figure out how to give Jesus the, the rest of us, the part we're most ashamed of and want to hide, that we can be made new. That's what my dad did. He finally gave all of himself <clears throat> to Jesus. Now, just because he did that didn't mean that I wasn't <clears throat> uh, you know, prone to the same kind of Huffman anger, right? I've had to deal with the same problems my whole adult life. That kind of high temper, hot temper, hot-headedness, right? Now, it's not been as extreme for several reasons, most of all because uh, I'm afraid of my wife, and uh, also, <clears throat> also because my life has not been as hard as my dad's life. You know how anxiety and, and fear can ratchet up, that sort of thing. We were poor. My dad was trying to provide, and he was working a job at a paper mill that he hated. And by the time he was my age, he had a daughter in college and a son in high school, and, and I can't imagine. I have mercy for him now, but I still have the same kind of anger. Most of it comes out when I'm in a car behind the wheel. <clears throat> and that's where I am most tempted. I talk about traffic a lot because it's one of my biggest struggles, you guys. And moving to Houston did not help that situation for me. I say things within the confines of my car that I would never say to people face to face. If you heard me say these things, you would never come hear me preach. I would completely ruin whatever witness or authority I might have before you, because that, that anger, that drive toward hot-headedness is still, um, is still somewhere um, within me. I used to honk my horn a lot um, until it stopped working. I honked my horn to death. Giovanna calls it the righteous judgment of God who took my horn away. <clears throat> And then I lost my voice this week, and I thought, oh, boy, what have I done? You know, like, maybe God's taking that away, uh, too. Um, but I'm dealing with this, you know. I'm on a mission to become a new man in Jesus Christ. I'm inspired by my dad and other people who have overcome family strongholds. I'm inspired by passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that says, If anyone is in Christ... There's a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. See, um, as we pursue this newness together, I, I think we have to be aware that, that, that we have a role to play in it as we break free from our past. There's four things real quick that I want us to focus on doing together. This is really simple, really easy. We've already covered the first one, which is identifying family strongholds. These are on your study guides. You can fill in the blanks if it helps for your uh, small group discussion. Every family has a particular struggle or seven particular struggles. Knowing yours is so, so important. And this is the work of confession. This is Christian confession. This is confessing the problem. Secondly, assume personal responsibility. The easiest thing to do when we talk about family dynamics and family sins is to blame your family for your bad decisions <clears throat> and to say, well, it's my dad's fault that I'm hot-headed. 
It's my mom's fault that I have low self-esteem. It's my parents' fault that every relationship I get into falls apart. I'm going to tell you right now, the sooner you can get past that kind of thinking, the better. The sooner you can realize that the mistakes you make today, there's no one else to blame, just you. You are fully, personally accountable for every decision that you make. The sooner you get there, the better. This is the art of conviction. This is being convicted by the Holy Spirit. It's me and only me that makes the decisions that I make. There's no more blaming anyone else. Third, trust the sufficiency of God's grace. Trust the sufficiency of God's grace. This is the most important one, and it simply means finally believing and internalizing that Jesus is who he said he was, that his life, death, and resurrection meant what Jesus said they meant, and that it's for you. And that all that grace and forgiveness stuff we talk about is not just for everybody else in the room. It's not just for those sinners and heathens outside of church. It's for you. The cross is for you. The forgiveness is for you. Jesus came to take all that away from you. I'm inspired by the, what Paul says in Romans when he, he says that while we were still in our sin, Jesus came and died for us. This proves God's love toward us. <clears throat> Jesus didn't come and die for some better version of you, for the perfect version of you. The version of you that's sitting right now, messed up in these patterns of sin, that's the version Jesus came to die for. And his forgiveness is for you. And if you trust in the sufficiency of his grace, it will change your life. That's the work of conversion. That's the moment of conversion. (coughs) Fourth and finally, (coughs) alter the redundancies. Alter the redundancies. This is a very fancy way of saying, guys, do something else. Do something different. Break free from the past. Break out of your default mode. We all have that default mode, you know, that we go to. It's like our safe mode. Remember we used to run a Windows computer and it kept messing up and go into safe mode? We all have that mode. And usually, our worst selves can be found in that default mode. Usually, uh, that's the case. You're anxious or sad, you reach for junk food. You're bored or unfulfilled, you reach for porn. Life spinning out of control, you reach for credit cards. There's conflict at home, you shut down and get passive aggressive because that worked for your mom and dad, right? I'm telling you, Jesus wants to change your life, that part of your life. Jesus wants to change your default settings to something better. But you got to let him. You got to be a willing participant in that process. And that means switching off of default mode and altering the redundancies. Some of you are struggling silently with addiction. And I can't even name the addiction. There's several in the room, I'm sure. There's no shame in it here. In a sense, we're all addicts to sin. In a sense, every church should be a recovery group. But I'm telling you, there's a recovery group meeting today in Houston for the specific addiction you're struggling with. And your default mode is to sit at home and pretend like there's nothing wrong. I'm telling you today, alter the redundancy. Today, find a 12-step group and go. Do something different. 
Your marriage might be on the rocks. And because every other marriage that you've seen on the rocks ended up falling apart, you've given up. I'm going to tell you, just because every other marriage didn't work out doesn't mean yours won't and that yours can't. God can do a new thing. Schedule marriage counseling. Don't give up. Don't give in. Fight. Wrestle. Struggle. Do something different. Parents, some of you might be sitting here today disappointed in yourself for the kind of parent you've become. Do something else. When your kids act up, try something else. When, you know, you're spending time at home, be more present. Turn off the TV. Read a book. Insist that your kids can be comfortable with boredom, for heaven's sake. Our kids have no idea how to be bored anymore. Do something other than what you are doing. Parents, alter the redundancy. So those of you who are single might be stuck in some kind of a rut. Those of you who are single, some of you, your default mode might be to just be comfortable with your aloneness. And so you resist getting involved. You resist dating because everybody who's in a relationship seems miserable to you. And so you've decided that that's not for you and your cats are getting nicer and nicer and you're gonna stay home and you're not gonna do it. I'm telling you that Jesus wants you to alter the redundancy Jesus wants you to go on some dates. Get out there and date. Now, not all of you need to hear that. Some of you single people have a different default setting. Some of you single people have a totally different default setting. Some of you are in such a a, a funk with dating that you've strung together a series of unhealthy dates, a series of unhealthy relationships. You've done things you're not proud of because you don't know how to be alone. You think a date is going to save you. You think a boyfriend or a girlfriend is going to redeem you. That's Jesus' job. I'm telling you to stop dating for a while. If that's your default setting, do something else. Break the chain, break the cycle. You all know what it is you need to work on. You've probably tried before and failed. I want you to know, I want you to hear and believe this time can be different. And here's why. Because this isn't up to your ability. This is not about your capacity for change. This is about God's ability to change you. And God is able, God is capable to change you. And that's why this time can be different. God fought with Jacob all night long. And when God saw that Jacob wasn't giving up, God saw that Jacob wasn't giving in, the sun came up and God changed his Life, but not only that, God changed his name. And I love this about the story. God gives Jacob a new name. God says, your name is no longer Jacob. Your name is Israel, which means God shall prevail. For the rest of his life, Jacob lived a different life, and he was known as Israel. God shall prevail. His life was never the same because he broke through that series of redundant sin that had held his family in chains for generations. God will do the same thing with you and me this year, this month, this day. You keep fighting. Don't give up. Don't give in. Trust that Jesus is who he said he was. And he came, lived and died and lived again to redeem you. And that 5% of your life you've been sweeping under the rug, you don't have to do it anymore. You can trust him with it. Let today be the beginning of the end of that chapter. 
Let today be the start of something new. Do something else. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your love. It's constantly taking us as we are and insisting that we grow, helping us to change and become who we were created to be. Pray for each person here that they would know and be reminded that your love is for them. Your heart is on fire for them, individually, each one. You know every hair on their head. You invite every one of them to this relationship. Help us to receive it and have the courage to say yes. In Jesus' name, amen.